0: Method and Madness is a true crime podcast dealing with events of violence that may be disturbing to some. Listener discretion is advised. The murder of a beloved TV star remains unsolved 43 years later. This is Method and Madness, episode 22, The Unsolved Murder of Bob Crane. I'm your host, Don Gandhi.
1: The Body was dismembered. A
0: ransom note was discovered. hiker stumbled upon the nude body of a local... The police are looking into the brutal slaying of a young woman. There may be a clue in a released 911 call. From.
1: The victim said she was stopped for five years.
0: Held captive inside a storage container. It was a twisted mix of obsession and revenge. No weapon has been located. Shot while asleep in their beds. Method. And madness. The deadly side of Hollywood, that intersection where the red carpet crosses over into addictions, greed, resentment, violence. It's there that you'll find those gripping, shocking, sad true stories of the stars that on screen appear to have it all. Where words and terms can trigger instant memories of tragedy, spark discussions where locations live in infamy. Like South Bundy or Cielo Drive. And while today's case didn't occur in LA, its roots are in Hollywood, where a man from Connecticut became a star. Let's dive in. Bob,
1: yes. this is Patty Page interrupting again. What is it now, Patty? Think you had better give the time again? Well, you're right in the middle of a commercial. It's six minutes after six. I mean if you're inter- they're not gonna finish the commercial if you're gonna come in and interrupt the time. Six after six. It's getting pretty late. Yeah, I know. We're all gonna light up a Marlboro right now because David wants to know if we want a cigarette. So there you go.
0: That's Bob Crane in his radio hosting days. Robert Edward Crane was born on July 13, 1928, to parents Alfred and Rosemary. Raised in a Roman Catholic home about 40 miles from New York City in Stamford, Connecticut, along with his older brother Alfred, Robert Crane, Bob, was bitten by the showbiz bug at a young age. At 11, he found an idol in jazz drummer Gene Krupa, He started taking drumming lessons and showed a lot of promise as a musician. He went on to graduate from Stanford High School before working as a watch repairman and then at age 20 enlisted in the Connecticut Army National Guard, where he served for two years. He married his high school sweetheart, Anne Terzian, and the pair had three children together, Robert, Deborah, and Karen. In 1950, he found a job in Hornell, New York, working at radio station WLEA, and then he moved on to radio stations in Connecticut. He worked as a disc jockey and news announcer, and his charisma and comedic style as a talented voice impersonator was recognized by CBS Radio in Hollywood. After listening to Bob for a few weeks, they offered him a job out on the West Coast at CBS Radio a morning show in L.A.
1: My little son Bobby is going to be our guest on the show today, and of course my name is Bob Crane. I thought I told you to wait in the car. No, I can't wait in the car. We have too much to do on the show today. It's going to be a nice day eventually, I hope. Anyway, it's very cloudy out right now. We just got back from breakfast. Of course, Dave didn't come back yet. He just went out the door, in fact. Who was that masked man, anyhow? That was no masked man. That was Dave, my engineer. He'll be back in just a couple of seconds. He went to get my son, Bobby, who will be our guest today. Of course, our program is brought to you with the compliments of White House cigars with HTL. Miss, for right now, we have Miss Doris Day to sing. Doris? Come on now. It's too early in the morning. <laughs> you want to get paid? See, all you have to do is make your money. That gets them right away. Oh, you're so clever. No, not me. Not really Just go ahead and sing. It's a minute and a half after When
0: skies are cloudy. The Bob Crane Show aired on KNX, and guests included 33 year old talk show host Regis Philbin, as well as Rod Serling, Marilyn Monroe, and Jerry Lewis. While working at the radio station, Bob was also trying to make it out in Hollywood. He appeared in TV shows like The Twilight Zone, The Alfred Hitchcock Hour, The Dick Van Dyke Show, and others, and began taking acting lessons with Stella Adler and doing parts in local plays. Bob became a series regular on the popular wholesome family series The Donna Reed Show as Dr. Dave Kelsey. And then... His big break came in 1965 when he scored the role of Colonel Robert E. Hogan on Hogan's Heroes. The show, which is what the handsome, likable Bob became best known for, was a comedy on CBS, aired for 168 episodes from 1965 to 1971, and was set in a German POW camp during World War II. Bob even played the drums for the opening theme song. There were lighthearted, silly storylines, and in it, the Nazis were portrayed as bumbling buffoons. The show earned a few Emmys for actor Werner Klemperer for his role as Colonel Klink and two Emmy nominations for Bob Crane. For the first year as the title character, Bob kept his job at the radio station before it became too much, and he signed off of KNX for the last time on August 16, 1965. Reportedly, it was during Bob's time on Hogan's Heroes that he engaged in an affair with one of his co-stars, an actress named Cynthia Lynn, who played Colonel Klink's secretary, Helga. Bob later insisted the role be recast the following season, and Patricia Olsen stepped in, and Clink's secretary was now a similar character, named Hilda. The affair had caused a rift in Bob's marriage, and he divorced his wife, Anne, and began dating his new co-star, Patricia Olsen, whose stage name was Sigrid Valdis. The two married in 1970 and had two children together, Scott and Anna Marie. So was Bob Crane a charming, comedic actor who just happened to have an affair? Well, as Bob's popularity grew, another side of him was showing itself around Hollywood, some would call Bob a full-on sex addict obsessed with women and with making amateur films, a lifestyle that may have led to his death. Richard Dawson, who also starred on Hogan's Heroes, knew that Bob was becoming interested in cameras and video equipment and movie making. In the late 60s, Dawson introduced Bob to a friend of his, an electronics company employee, a man named John Henry Carpenter, not to be confused with the director of the 1978 masterpiece, Halloween. Note this John Carpenter was a sort of camera equipment expert to the stars. With Bob getting into the art of home movies and in a time before everyone owned a camcorder, he needed some assistance in picking out the right equipment. That is when his friendship with Carpenter took off. Carpenter became an assistant of sorts to Bob Crane, helping him purchase and set up the video equipment. Meanwhile, despite his marital status, Bob was having numerous affairs with different women that he was picking up at bars and nightclubs, and tagging along with him was his new friend, John Carpenter. Their friendship grew, and as they went out at night, women were drawn to Bob Crane, his looks, his celebrity status, and Carpenter was happy to be along for the ride. The two would take women back to hotels and film threesomes and other sexual exploits. Bob's hobby became a fixation, as he began photographing and videotaping numerous women as they posed naked for him. He developed the photos in his own darkroom and learned how to edit videos, taking hours to make his own pornographic movies. Reportedly, while all of the sex on film was consensual, the women were not always aware they were being recorded. Over the years, Bob's son Robert Jr. and Scott have said they were aware of their dad's activities, a fact he didn't try to keep a secret from either of them. Still, they described Bob Crane as a good father, and Crane's daughter Karen also said he was a good dad, the type that would play, be silly, he was no different than the other dads on the block. It wasn't long before the tabloids started printing stories of the Hogan's hero star, and it didn't help matters that Bob enjoyed sharing the photos he had taken Passing albums around on set and showing off his work to friends. In 1971, Hogan's Heroes went off the air, but would live on in reruns for decades. Bob Crane never truly found that winning role again, and some say it was because of the reputation he was gaining in Hollywood of a cheating, sex addicted man with a camera. In 1973, Pursuing his love of theater, Bob purchased the rights to a play written by Norman Barish and Carol Moore called Beginner's Luck and played the lead, Paul Burnett. His bio in the play's program mentioned the frequent comparisons of Bob's comedic talents to Jack Lemmon, Bob Hope, and Cary Grant. He toured the play around the U.S. for the next five years. During those theater appearances, John Carpenter latched on to Bob, Following his productions around the country, spending a few days going out to bars with Bob to pick up women, Bob Crane was carpenter's ticket to a life of celebrity and lots of women. In 1974, Bob starred in the Disney movie Superdad along with a 22-year-old Kurt Russell, along with Dick Van Patten and Bruno Kirby. In the movie. Bob plays an overprotective dad to his college-age daughter, played by Barbara Rush, in a film that critic Judith Crist called shoddy and stupid by the lowest family fare standards. And then in 1975, Bob did The Bob Crane Show, a sitcom that never made it past its first season. In 1976, he was in another Disney movie called Gus, which was a family hit in theaters, but by now, Bob's TV and movie career was suffering enough that Bob stuck with theater, maybe for the money, maybe for the craft, and maybe a little bit of both. And in 1977, Bob's second wife filed for divorce. According to Robert Crane Jr., it was due to his father's affairs and X rated movie making that became too much for Sigrid Valdis. In 1978, Bob was still touring with the play Beginner's Luck and was renting an apartment in Scottsdale, Arizona while performing at Windmill Dinner Theater, which 43 years later is now an auction house. On Wednesday, June 28th, Bob's friend John Carpenter, who was visiting Arizona for four days, sat in the audience of the play, and after the curtain call, the two went out drinking at bars and talking to women. They picked up two women at a nightclub and took them out to eat. Around 2 a.m., Bob went back home alone to the peaceful Winfield Apartments, where he was renting while performing at the windmill. The next day, around 2 p.m., Bob's 28-year-old co-star in Beginner's Luck, Australian actress Victoria Berry, came to his door, apartment 132A. They had agreed to meet up that afternoon. Bob was going to give her some acting pointers, but when Barry knocked, there was no answer, and the newspaper for that day was still on the doorstep. She tried turning the doorknob, it was open. She entered Bob's ground floor apartment, and it was quiet. And despite the sunny day in Scottsdale, the rooms were very dark as all of the thick curtains were drawn closed. She called out for Bob, but there was no response and she made her way down the hall to his bedroom. As she walked in, still calling out his name, she saw that someone was in Bob's bed. It looked like a woman with long hair and Barry assumed Bob had a lady friend over. Her mind raced as she began putting the pieces of the scene together. She first wondered where Bob was and noticed that the woman in the bed looked injured and that Bob must have gone to get help. But then she saw that there was blood on the wall and that there was no woman in Bob's bed. It was a man, who initially she thought was John Carpenter, as she had seen him at the play the night before. But at a closer look, it was Bob, his head so soaked with blood the streaks coming down his face in a manner that looked like a woman's long hair at first glance. Just weeks away from his 50th birthday, Bob Crane was dead, wearing only white boxer shorts and his wristwatch, lying on his right side in the fetal position. His face was unrecognizable on one side. Around his neck, there was some sort of cable tied in a bow, and the scene was horrific once the lights were turned on. Blood all over the bed, soaked the sheets and blanket. There was blood spatter on the walls and the ceiling. Barry ran out of the apartment and called the police. Scottsdale Police Officer Paulette Cassietta arrived first, followed by Lieutenant Ron Dean. A murder investigation was launched by the Scottsdale Police Department, who at the time didn't have a homicide unit, and didn't have much experience investigating murders, a fact that would lead to rumors of a compromised crime scene. The investigation was led by Lieutenant Ron Dean and Officer Dennis Borkenhagen, and they noted the following on day one. There was no sign of a struggle, although the apartment was untidy, not from a struggle or ransacking, just that it wasn't particularly orderly. There was video equipment and videotapes throughout the apartment. Bob appeared to be asleep when the attack occurred. There was no indication he had fought back. The cause of death was to be determined, but it seemed that Bob was struck in the head on the left temple twice with a blunt instrument like a tire iron or some kind of club. The murder weapon must have been taken when the killer left the apartment. Nothing was found at the scene. There was no sign of forced entry, and nothing of value was missing. It didn't look like a robbery. Both the front door had been left unlocked. Remember, Victoria Berry had been able to let herself in. And additionally, the back door leading out to the pool was open, which police suspected had been intentionally left open by the killer prior to the murder so that he or she could let themselves in later. That afternoon, Victoria Berry sat in the kitchen of the apartment. She had identified the body as Bob's and was giving her report to police when the phone rang. She was instructed by Lieutenant Dean to answer it, but not to mention anything about Bob's death. Berry answered the phone, and John Carpenter was on the other line, calling from Los Angeles. He had taken a flight back home that morning. Berry would recall later that Carpenter sounded strange, but important to note that many people describe John Carpenter as a strange sort of awkward man in general. Barry passed the phone to Lieutenant Dean, who said he was there investigating an incident and wanted to ask Carpenter a few questions. During the call, Carpenter never asked what incident was being investigated, and the officer didn't mention that Bob was dead. Carpenter answered the questions telling Lieutenant Dean that he and Bob had been out together the night before until about 1 a.m., although later on, he would change the time and say they had parted ways around 2.45 a.m. After that call ended, another one of Bob's friends called, followed by a call from Bob's son, Bob Jr., who had just gotten a call from John Carpenter that something was going on at his dad's apartment. Police were still keeping the information close to their chest and didn't tell Bob Jr. much. And then at 3.30 p.m., John Carpenter called again. He talked to Lieutenant Dean, and there are two versions of how that call went, Dean's and Carpenter's. Lieutenant Dean said that he was troubled that Carpenter still hadn't asked what happened or what was being investigated. But Carpenter said that he had asked what was going on, but that Dean had been vague and wouldn't give out any information. When Bob's family was notified, they were shocked, confused, and devastated. His children were given very few details initially, as the whole story was still fuzzy. At first, they had been told their father was shot, and Bob's son, Bob Jr., traveled out to Arizona from California immediately and visited his dad in the morgue. The Maricopa County Medical Examiner, Dr. Heinz Carnetschnig, had examined Bob's body at the crime scene. He had even shaved a section of the victim's hair behind the ear to look closely at the fatal wound, which shocked those in attendance. It was unorthodox conducting an examination of that kind at the scene. carnot Chenig put together a timeline of events based on the injuries and condition of Bob's body. Bob had been killed early in the morning on June 29th while he slept on his right side in bed. The injuries to his head were two separate blows with a blunt object, and both injuries were deadly. The second blow to Bob's skull was likely the one that killed him, and his death would have been instant. The killer then took an electrical cord and tied it around Bob's neck. However, he was already dead when this occurred. Whatever the murder weapon was, the killer wiped the blood off of it with the bedsheets before taking it with them, leaving the apartment. The autopsy was conducted the next day by Dr. Thomas Jarvis with the manner of death listed as homicide and the cause of death, head injury. It was determined that Bob Crane had died from two heavy violent blows to his head. He had suffered skull fractures and deep contusions of the brain. The cord tied around his neck did not contribute to his death, but may have been used to prevent Bob from screaming. It was noted on the report that there was a dry, flaky substance found near his genitals, which may have been semen, but it was never tested. Arizona newspaper, The Arizona Republic, had Bob's murder on their front page with the following headline, TV star Bob Crane found beaten to death in Valley. Other papers grabbed readers with the headlines, Hogan's Heroes TV star is found slain. Police interviewed Bob's friends, family, and current and former co-stars. While many murder investigations begin with, quote, the victim didn't have any enemies, with this one, that was not the case. Despite how lovable Bob Crane was on radio, screen, and stage, and although he was charming, kind-hearted, those that loved him, police quickly learned there was quite a few people that may have had a motive to kill him. There was his wife, Patricia, Sigrid. She and Bob were separated and in the middle of a messy divorce, and they'd been arguing by phone the night before Bob was found dead. It was rumored that there was an actor that had fought with Bob a few months earlier. Rumors swirled that it may have been a mob hit. There was Bob's friend, John Carpenter, who had witnesses in Arizona said that they'd seen arguing with Bob in the days leading up to his murder. But other witnesses said everything seemed fine between the two. And Bob Crane Jr. told police that through conversations with his dad, he learned that Carpenter was starting to be a, quote, pain in the ass to Bob. Bob had even expressed wanting to end the friendship with Carpenter. And then there were the men. The men who had had their wives and girlfriends seduced by Bob over the years, and there were hundreds of women. Some of them had been in relationships, and some of those women's partners were pissed. To add insult to injury, many of these women had also been photographed by Bob nude. During the police investigation, they had found hundreds of Polaroid photos in Bob's home of different women, all nude, and the videotapes, the documented home movies that Bob had made during many of his sexual encounters with some women who consented to being recorded, and some who had no idea there was a camera on them. In the bathroom of his Scottsdale apartment, there was a makeshift darkroom where Bob would develop photos along with a photo enlarger. Bob's homemade porn videos were edited in such a way that he would cut in scenes from sitcoms and talk shows, in between scenes of himself engaging in sex acts. But it was John Carpenter that police began to zero in on and the suspicions that he had the motive to kill. It was unusual that Carpenter had been staying at a hotel while visiting Scottsdale. Throughout his and Bob's friendship, he would stay with Bob when he was in town visiting. The hotel stay seemed to coincide with the theory that Bob was trying to end the friendship. Carpenter had been the last known person to see Bob alive and was even seen in some of Bob's homemade videos. It was suspicious that he had called Bob's apartment twice the day he was found murdered, like a killer who returns to the crime scene. Further, Carpenter had not shown any concern for Bob or asked why police were there investigating, although he claims that he did ask what was up. So now it was time to take a closer look at Carpenter. Investigators tracked down the car he had rented while visiting Arizona, a 1978 Chrysler Cordoba. It was at a Chrysler dealership in Phoenix being repaired after Carpenter had complained to the car rental company that there was something wrong with the vehicle's electrical system. Police suspected that the murder weapon, which still hadn't been found, may have been a tire iron and needed to take a good look at Carpenter's car. Lieutenant Dean had the car towed to the State Department of Public Safety for a forensic examination. Turned out that blood was found on the passenger side door. Upon testing, it was discovered that the blood type was B-negative, which just happened to be the same blood type that Bob Crane had, significant since reportedly only one in seven people had that blood type. Of course, this was 1978, long before the first documented case of DNA being used in a criminal case, which was in 1986. And no firm determination could be made that the blood was Bob's. With the discovery of the blood in his rental car, police contacted John Carpenter and informed him that he was a suspect in his friend's murder. Carpenter then returned voluntarily to Arizona from his home in L.A. to clear his name and to help police identify the real murderer of Bob Crane. While back in Scottsdale, Carpenter offered to take a lie detector test, as well as offering to take truth serum, and he even asked to be hypnotized. He gave his version of events that occurred in the days leading up to Bob's murder, Carpenter had arrived in Arizona the weekend prior to the murder to conduct some business and to hang out with Bob. He checked in at the sunburst, which was only a few blocks away from where Bob was renting the two-bedroom at the Winfield Apartments. On the night of June 28th, after the play, Bob, 49, and John Carpenter, 50, left the theater and took Bob's car to a nearby gas station to fix its flat tire. They then went back to Bob's apartment, where Carpenter said that he overheard a tense argument between Bob and his wife on the phone. Afterward, they did some bar hopping and disco hopping, the usual. They started the night at the Disco Bogarts. It was revealed that John Carpenter didn't drink and Bob barely did, but going to bars and clubs was the best way for the pair to meet women. And there they met two sisters, Carol and Christy Newell. Bob didn't show much interest in the sisters and called an acquaintance from the disco, a woman that he had previously slept with, a 29-year-old named Carolyn Barr, who worked at a local restaurant. Bob asked Carolyn to meet him and Carpenter for a middle-of-the-night breakfast, and she met them along with Carol Newell at a coffee shop called Safari. Christy Newell had left the group for the night. Through interviews, it was learned that nothing of note occurred at the Safari coffee shop, and after the four finished their breakfast, Carolyn Barr drove herself home, Bob Crane drove himself back to his apartment, and John Carpenter drove Carol Newell back to his hotel room, where he essentially tried to put the moves on her. She turned him down, and he drove her home in his rental car around 3 a.m. According to Carol Newell, while being dropped off by Carpenter, He had made her promise that she would go to Bob Crane's apartment the next day, a move that convinced police that Carpenter was trying to persuade someone else to find his friend's body. Carol never ended up keeping that promise, and ultimately it was Victoria Berry that ended up finding Bob. After dropping Carol off at her home, Carpenter said he then returned to his hotel and called Bob to see if he had scored with his friend Carolyn. He hadn't, and Carpenter told him that he wouldn't need a ride to the airport the next day that he had his own transportation. According to Carpenter, the two said goodbye and that was that. Bob's agenda book, which was on the nightstand next to his bed, confirmed in his handwriting that he was supposed to take Carpenter to the airport on that fateful morning. At 8:24 a.m. the next day, hotel records show that Carpenter checked out of the Sunburst. He said that after that, he took a cab to the airport since remember the rental car had electrical issues. He flew back to LA and drove himself to work. While there, Carpenter said he called Bob to check in and that was when he first spoke with Lieutenant Dean. Which brings us to a few days after the murder. July 1st, when Scottsdale police knocked on John Carpenter's door in California, an apartment he was sharing with 20-year-old Rita Claudier while separated from his wife, Diana. Rita answered the door but didn't know where Carpenter was and guessed that he may be at his friend's, Richard Dawson's. But moments later, Carpenter called. He was 70 miles away at his mother's home, and upon learning that the police were there, and wanted to talk to him, he headed home. There in the apartment, Carpenter was read his Miranda rights and answered all of the questions Lieutenant Dean and Officer Borkenhagen asked. He told the officers about a photo album that Bob had shown him during his visit, an album full of pictures that Bob had taken of nude women. He volunteered information about Bob that hadn't been asked that Bob always urinated after having sex a fact that police thought was suspicious to bring up unless you're guilty of something and you're trying to explain something away. Maybe the semen found on Bob. Carpenter didn't know how to explain that the police had found blood in his rental car in Arizona and agreed to fly back to Scottsdale immediately for further questioning. The next day, Carpenter, Dean, and Borkenhagen flew back to Arizona. John Carpenter was nervous. He knew he was a suspect and expressed his worry about being looked at so closely. He denied killing Bob Crane, saying he would never do such a thing, especially to his best friend. He offered to take a lie detector test, offered to take a truth serum, volunteered to do anything to help police find the killer. Dean and Borkenhagen didn't take Carpenter up on his offers. They wanted to arrest him and charge him with Bob Crane's murder. They had blood in his car, he was the last person to see Bob alive, he had called twice while they were investigating the crime scene, and a photo album Carpenter had mentioned twice was never found in Bob Crane's apartment. Police assumed Carpenter had taken it and mentioned its existence only to throw the police off. Maybe he was trying to point the finger at a jealous husband. No arrest would be made that day, though. The Maricopa County attorney, Chuck Hyder, said what they had was circumstantial at best. There was nowhere near enough evidence against John Carpenter to prosecute him for murder. They would have to get more evidence. Without any charges against him, John Carpenter was free to go and he flew back to California, well aware that he was still on the police radar. Lieutenant Dean was positive that Carpenter was their killer. He had his phone calls recorded and listened to conversations between Carpenter and Bob Crane Jr., where it sounded like Carpenter was ready to confess. Well, according to Lieutenant Dean. The way Dean saw it was that Carpenter had been a tag-along to Bob Crane and Richard Dawson for years and was green with envy and angry that Crane was cutting him off, moving on, and focusing more on his family. To Dean, that was enough of a motive for Carpenter to kill Bob Crane. It was only a few days later when Scottsdale police were back in California, back at John Carpenter's front door, ready for another interrogation. During their questioning, Carpenter again denied killing his, quote, best friend, and Dean repeatedly told him, I know you did it. But they had nothing on him. Carpenter was once again free to go. But his arrest would come 14 years later. It was June 1992, and the investigation into Bob Crane's murder had some fresh eyes on it. Detective Barry Vassell and investigator Jim Rains. Some new quote-unquote evidence had been uncovered, and the now 63-year-old carpenter was arrested and charged with the murder. Apparently, a photo was found in the evidence file by Raines, a photo of a speck of something from Carpenter's rental car back in 1978. This photo was analyzed by pathologists, and it was determined that the speck was human tissue with a piece of hair attached. The actual speck, the physical tissue, was never preserved. But with the photo... The Maricopa County attorney gave the go ahead to prosecute. Police were certain they knew what the murder weapon was, too. While they originally speculated that Bob Crane may have been hit with a tire iron, detectives in 1992 took a look at the evidence and noticed two bloodstains on the bedsheet. It looked like the killer had wiped the murder weapon clean on the sheet, and they thought that the V formation in the stain looked like the shape of a tripod, a camera tripod. Working with the crime lab, the circumstances were reconstructed using a camera tripod, and the testing showed that the tripod's shape and size matched both the bloodstain on the sheet and the injury to Bob Crane's skull. While many were relieved that justice may finally be near, others were skeptical. The Maricopa County attorney, Richard Romley, was up for re-election that year. Of course, Romley denied the arrest had anything to do with politics, but friends and family of Bob's remained concerned that there was enough evidence to convince a jury. Bob's Hogan's Heroes co-star, Werner Klumper said of the arrest, quote, I have grave doubts about the validity of what is happening today. I personally am not sure whether this will ever be solved. The police were sure they had their motive, though, Bob Crane was done with John Carpenter, wanted to end the friendship and move on better himself. Carpenter was furious about this and killed his friend. So the trial started in summer of 1994 and lasted for eight weeks, but the prosecution didn't have much evidence to convince a jury of Carpenter's guilt. There was a photo of a speck of something, which the prosecutors claimed was tissue from Bob Crane's skull. There was no way, however, to prove it. No doctors to testify in any scientific manner that the speck was physical evidence tying John Carpenter to the murder of Bob Crane. The prosecution set up the narrative for the court that Bob had lived a, quote, swinger lifestyle and that Carpenter had often joined him in his nights out to bars where they'd pick up women, women who were attracted to Bob's good looks and celebrity status. Bob and Carpenter would take the women back to Bob's place and engage in sex, which was often photographed and recorded. The prosecution presented images and black and white videos to the jury of Bob Crane and John Carpenter having an occasional threesome with the women. On the last night of Bob Crane's life, the prosecution said he had confronted John Carpenter and told him that their friendship was over. Carpenter, enraged that Bob was taking away his past to sex with tons of women, murdered Bob with a blunt object, a camera tripod. One witness that testified was Bob Jr., who said that just weeks before his father's murder, the two had talked and Bob had complained about John Carpenter, saying he was tired of him and that he was going to end their friendship. The defense argued that the evidence against John Carpenter was inconclusive and offered other theories, like the jealous husband theory, casting reasonable doubt and posing the possibility that Bob was murdered after pissing off the wrong boyfriend or husband. The jury deliberated for two and a half days before coming back with a verdict of not guilty. John Carpenter was free and relieved to finally have his name cleared. Friends and family of Bob's were furious that no justice had been served, and many were certain that the right man was walking the streets. Still, it all came down to a lack of evidence, with a juror later saying that there was no conclusive report that the blood or the speck on the inside of Carpenter's car was Bob Cranes. And without that confirmation, the juror simply couldn't convict a man of murder. The murder weapon was never even found. John Henry Carpenter died in September 1998 at age 70. Various rumors have swirled around, mostly from tabloids in the years since Bob's murder. It's the murder of a beloved TV sitcom actor who loved to have sex with lots of different women. It's unsolved. There's going to be crazy theories and suggestions. Some theories suggest sex scandals and a murder committed by a porn director who was mad that Bob had backed out of doing an adult film. Over the last few decades, since Carpenter's acquittal, Bob Crane's children have struggled to come to terms with the lack of justice in their father's murder. They hoped that maybe someone would breathe life back into the case, and with the improvement of DNA testing, there's hope. The case made headlines again in 2016, with information released that a reporter in Phoenix, John Hook, had the DNA found in Carpenter's car retested, using science that has improved greatly since the trial. Through the testing, it was determined that the DNA found on Carpenter's car door was not Bob Cranes. There was actually two different DNA profiles detected, one from an unknown male and the other was too partial to make any determinations. Bob Crane Jr. was shocked to hear the news while Carpenter's family expressed their relief. Some headlines released after these tests indicated that John Carpenter was cleared. I don't see how it clears him or anyone. One DNA profile was an unknown male, and the other was too partial to identify. So the partial one could have been Bob's, Even if neither DNA profile led back to Bob, that doesn't clear John Carpenter of his murder. There are still no other official suspects. A lack of Bob's blood in Carpenter's car doesn't make Carpenter innocent. It doesn't make him guilty either. Bob's son, Robert Crane Jr., later wrote in his book, Crane, Sex, Celebrity, and My Father's Unsolved Murder, That the investigation was botched from the beginning with friends and acquaintances of the victim allowed into the crime scene, people touching things, contaminating the scene, smoking cigarettes inside the apartment, and a police department that was inexperienced with homicides. While he testified at Carpenter's trial that he believed Carpenter killed his father out of anger and that their friendship was ending— Bob Jr. also had reason to believe that his stepmom, Sigrid Valdis may have been involved as she would have gained financially from the murder. Maricopa County DA Rick Romley disputed that she was ever a suspect. She had a solid alibi for the night. A lot of coverage on this case centers on Bob Crane's love of women and his love of home movies and combining the two. And it's certainly an integral part of the case because it very well could have something to do with his murder. I get that. But let's take a moment and look at the evidence more objectively. In 1978, the U.S. was experiencing an increase in homicides. In fact, the rate nearly doubled from the mid-60s to the late 70s. The estimated number of homicides that year was 19,560 a number steadily rising from just over 9,000 in 1960. According to FBI crime reports from 1976 to 2005, males represented 77% of all homicides and 90% of offenders. What can be gathered from the victim's age? Bob Crane was 49 at the time of his murder, for which 1978 that would have counted for approximately 4,365 of the nearly 20,000 victims. In terms of statistics regarding age and gender, Bob Crane's homicide was not a rare case. So what about the weapon used? In 1978, blunt objects were used in only 937 of the 19,560 homicides in the U.S. The most common weapon was handgun or some other type of firearm, with blunt object being the least common weapon. And crime statistics show that blunt objects are most commonly used during the commission of a robbery. But in this case, we know no robbery occurred. Being friends or acquaintances to each other was the most common relationship between offender and victim in 1978. So while the weapon used wasn't the most common one, this wasn't an unusual or rare circumstance for a murder. How about the scene? If Bob was asleep when he was murdered, then the killer either was able to use a key to get inside the apartment, the door was already unlocked and the killer knew that, or the killer was already inside the apartment. Let's ponder the theories. If the murderer was a jealous husband or boyfriend, then they took a hell of a risk that night. How would they have gotten into the apartment unless they broke in? was the plan to break in, but they got lucky in that the front door just happened to be unlocked? And if a camera tripod owned by Bob was the actual murder weapon, then the killer just walked in hoping that A, Bob would be asleep, and B, that there would be something available to kill him with? I think the theory that it was a jealous husband or boyfriend would mean that the weapon was not the tripod. It was something the boyfriend or husband brought with them and took with them after the murder. Same goes for if the killer was hired or was done through some kind of mob hit, or was a person that had appeared in Bob's videos and was afraid of exposure. Any of these possibilities that don't point to John Carpenter are not unlikely scenarios. The only fact that doesn't really line up with this theory is the lack of a break in. The murder itself, the bludgeoning, certainly indicates a rage killing. This was personal, this was angry. This person knew Bob Crane. Was it someone that was hired and a key was provided, which explains the lack of a forced entry? Now let's look closer at John Carpenter as the alleged killer. He could have easily accessed Bob's apartment by leaving a door unlocked, maybe unlocking the back door while Bob was busy on the phone with his estranged wife. He called Bob after their night out, possibly to ensure that Bob was alone in the apartment and didn't have a woman with him and to tell Bob that he wouldn't need a ride to the airport the next day. This covers him. So if anyone asked why he didn't check in on why Bob didn't show up to drive him, Carpenter could explain why he took a cab and why he had phoned Bob in the middle of the night. So after that call, Carpenter goes back to Bob's apartment in the early morning hours, maybe even walks there from his motel room. lets himself into the apartment through the back door that he had left unlocked for himself. He knows that there's a tripod he can use to assault his friend. He kills Bob Crane while he's asleep, ensuring that there will be no way for him to fight back. Wipes the tripod off on the sheet and exits the same way he walked in, but before he leaves, Unlocks the front door too so that Bob Crane can easily be found the next morning. Remember, he allegedly had asked his friend Carol Newell to go check in on Bob the next day. He either drives or walks back to his motel and disposes of the tripod or some other weapon. Maybe he drives it to a dumpster somewhere. Blood or tissue on the passenger door could have come from Carpenter getting rid of the murder weapon by driving to dump it and possibly his bloody clothes. What about his motive? Killing someone and risking prison because your friend is taking away your ticket to a lot of sex with women. It's kind of weak, but people have committed murder for a lot less. There just wasn't much for Carpenter to gain from killing Bob Crane. After the murder, if John Carpenter was the killer, he was awfully cooperative. Was he confident that he wouldn't be looked at? Did he think he was smarter than the police and that he had carried out the crime so well that cooperating would make him look more innocent? Why offer to take truth serum and a lie detector test? Was he actually innocent? If so, were the police targeting him in order to just solve the homicide? And then in 1992, when the case was re-examined, was Carpenter again targeted because of the ease of naming him as a suspect? I can't help but wonder if the camera tripod, being the weapon theory, was a way to symbolically nail Carpenter as the killer. I am a huge proponent of forensic evidence, forensic science, of science in general, but 14 years after the murder, an investigator surmises that the weapon just so happens to be something that would symbolize the relationship between John Carpenter and Bob Crane as well as the killer's profession it's almost too on the nose, too easy. Bottom line, my opinion based on the highly circumstantial evidence is that it was probably John Carpenter who murdered Bob Crane, based on the lack of forced entry, phone calls to Bob's apartment, and the fact he was the last person known to speak with Bob before his death. What do you think? Reach out. Let's discuss. There were two other murders in Scottsdale in the summer of 1978, and they were unsolved as well. One was the murder of a woman, Patty Kerger, age 30, who was found beaten and stabbed in a parking lot one week before Bob Crane was murdered. The other victim was 25-year-old Ken Avenir, who was found in his hotel room on August 27th with his head bashed in with a lamp and his body stabbed 17 times with a ballpoint pen. The eerie part is that Ken was staying at the Sunburst Resort, the same place that John Carpenter had stayed in just two months earlier. At the time, police determined that the murders were not related to Bob Crane's murder. Bob Crane is buried at Westwood Memorial Park in Los Angeles. His second wife, Sigrid Valdis died in 2007 and is buried next to him. Bob's murder is still officially listed as unsolved. Thank you for listening to Method and Madness. This is an independent podcast, so if you like it, go ahead and leave a five-star review. It helps new listeners find me. I'm on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at MethodAndMadnessPod. There's a Method and Madness page on Facebook as well. To chat or discuss the episode, reach out to me at methodandmadnesspod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast dealing with dark and disturbing subject matter. For crisis support, text HELLO to 741-741.